You know when you have really great leftovers and you're so excited to take them for lunch the next day and then you get to work and you realize you left them at home? It's the worst thing that could happen to you. It's the worst thing. Mike here has a tip. So a tip that my dad passed on to me was uh, that if I put my keys in the fridge with my food, then I would almost never forget it because I'd almost always need to use my keys to lock the house or unlock my bike or get into my car. And so, uh, yeah, that became the, the way that I never forgot my food is by putting the keys in the fridge your keys are a little cold i guess yeah they're they're typically cold and some well honestly sometimes i'd i'd be ready to leave and think man where did i put my keys and then (laughs) i'd be outside trying to figure it out and then have to go back in and remember that my food is with my keys i can imagine though i'd get to a point where i I know i'm gonna forget that too so eventually there's just all this stuff in the (laughs) fridge on top of the lunch with the keys yeah, I'm sure if I, if I packed my uh, tool bag and my keys and my food all in the fridge together, my roommates wouldn't be too happy. <laughs> this is How to Do Everything. I'm Mike. And I'm Ian. Today marks 80 straight podcasts without LeVar Burton as a guest. On today's show, we'll tell you how to fit in with dairy farmers. And we'll tell you how to get through airport security in really the most terrible way possible. But first... This week in Rotterdam, there was a huge art heist. Yeah, thieves broke into a museum. They stole paintings by Picasso, Monet, Matisse, and others. All told, these paintings were worth $100 million. Now, early reports say that the thieves used basically like a brute force method of going in, taking the paintings, and and getting out of there. We're, We're curious how thieves normally go about stealing expensive, famous paintings. Joining us now is Thomas Adamson. He writes for the Associated Press in Paris, and he's been looking into this. So, Thomas, tell us about one of the classic art heists that that piqued your interest. There is one uh, case here in Paris which was um, responsible for making the Mona Lisa uh, as famous as it is to this day. Before then, of course, it was very well known, but the celebrity status it has was because it was stolen and people started saying, oh, it must be very valuable if robbers are willing to go and steal it. In August 2011, it was taken rather brazenly from its symbolic place in the center of the Louvre Museum. And um, bizarrely, Pablo Casso was one of those uh, detained and taken in for questioning by the police who were investigating it. The Louvre closed for a week. Uh, they were mourning. They thought that, you know, their masterpiece had been lost forever. And in fact, it did take two years before they could get their uh, crown um, back. And art historians say, in fact, it was a Louvre employee called uh, Vincenzo Perugia who'd stolen it. Um, simple as one, two, three, entering the building during regular hours, hiding it in a broom closet, and then walking out with it uh, hidden under his coat when the Louvre had closed for the day. So it made him look very simple. Wait, but they brought, they brought Picasso in. They brought Picasso in. They brought the, the writer Guillaume Apollinaire in, who is a famous poet here, and he led them on to Pablo Picasso for questioning, which sounds extremely hard to believe, but it is in fact true. Well, the, these uh, sound uh, so simple. Is there an example of a, a more complex heist that you looked into? Well, <clears throat> there was one in Boston, which was, I mean, and still is to this day, uh, what they call, what police call around the world, the largest single property theft of all time in human history. It was $300 million uh, in art that was taken in just a short period of time. It was in March 1990. They, they got in um, at night by posing as these Boston police officers and saying that they were responding to an emergency call. So um, it was a very elaborate plot. Once inside, the thieves uh, handcuffed security guards, 
um, took them into the basement. It sounds like the Thomas Crown affair. And then they were, the police were, the security guards were secured to pipes and their hands and feet were fastened with duct tape. And uh, from then, the, the thieves had free reign and they took off with this 300 million uh, dollars in art works by uh, Dutch masters for beer, Rembrandt, French, paint, French painter Manet were just a few of them. They're still missing, of course. Do you, do you have a sense for when a, a heist is that well planned, um, just, just how long the thieves take getting ready for it? One, one can have no idea. It can take anything up to, you know, several months to years, I'm sure. I mean, the amount of information these people have is down to the, the T. They really, really dot the I's here. And they obviously have insider information about where the security buttons are kept in this Boston um, instance. We know that the thieves were able to distract the security guards away from the alarm buttons and the security underneath the counter. So, of course, they actually knew the exact positioning of all the security systems. The, the, I read something about the, the uh, Rotterdam theft. One of the experts was saying, what are these guys thinking? There's no way it, they can sell these. So what are the, the, the thieves, how are they planning to profit? Well, they must tread very carefully. Obviously, if you have Interpol and all sorts of international uh, police organizations after you, you've got to keep a pretty low profile. I imagine, and it's only a guess, but they must go into private collections or be hidden away, um, you know, out of the public view. That's it? So you just steal these paintings and then you put them up at home or sell them to some shady guy who puts them up in his living room? Well, put it this way, they can't be that public if police have been looking for them for so much, for so long. Uh, across, you know, each side of the Atlantic. The Boston case, for example, we're 22 years on now, and they still have no clue as to where these paintings are. It remains a mystery. Well, I just don't understand, because it seems funny to me. If I had a Picasso, I'd be very excited to be like, hey, check out my Picasso. It's very nice. It's, it's real. Just don't tell anyone I have it, because, you know... With um, the theft of bronze statues, it's very different. That's another kind of uh, art heist. Uh, with bronze statues, you can actually melt down the statues and then reuse the bronze, which is itself a very valuable material. You're not probably going to make a lot of money if you melt down a Picasso tableau, so <laughs> I, assu I assume you just have to kind of lie low until you manage to sell it on to a bidder on the black market or somewhere that's really away from the, the, the view of police. Well, thank you, Thomas. This has been great. Thank you very much. Received at 7.41 p.m. Hey, guys. Uh, guess I got a question for you. Hey, uh, I'm from Green Bay, Wisconsin. My name's Aaron. Um, first question, I would love you guys to do a show on how farmers, like dairy farmers, work. I, uh, I sell pressure washers up here, and I, I can tool around farms all the time. I'm having a hard time talking to the guys about it because I don't know exactly what they're doing at what stage. Also, how Zambonis work would be a fantastic show because Zambonis just kick ass. All right, that's it, man. Been a long time listener. Love you guys. Thanks, bye. Okay, Aaron, I think we can help you out, though I think we'll save the Zamboni question for a future episode. That's a good idea. On the line with us now is Tina Hinchley. She's a dairy farmer in Wisconsin. So, Tina, Aaron uh, comes into contact with a lot of dairy farmers uh, over the course of his job, and we want to help him learn a few things so he can fit in better with them. Yeah, can, can you help with that? It's going to be really hard. Um, it's misunderstood, I guess, um, the way that um, 
everybody that thinks that a cow that anything that's black and white that says moo is a cow. Right. And that's not necessarily true. They're not a cow until they've calved. And so all the young stock are heifers. So that field of animals, would you say that look at those cattle? Um, yeah, you could say yeah, you could say look at those Holsteins. The species name is bovine. We don't really call them that either. So that would but not as farmers okay. when we're driving by, we're looking for udders. So we can say if they're cows or not, or we'd know. You could tell if they're dry cows as well. So if uh if I were hanging out with a dairy farmer uh and I saw an animal and I said, Hey, that's a nice cow there but it it hadn't yet uh, had a calf, right. I would look like an idiot? Kind of. So what's the right way to ask the question, um, how are your cows this, this year? Well, if you're, if you're talking to a dairy farmer, that would be totally appropriate because they're going to have dairy cows, uh-huh. and you would be able to say that. Um, you could ask how your herd is. What about how, how are the ladies? That's perfect. Yeah? Yep. Okay. Yep, you could do that, too. Just remember, if they don't have an udder, they're not a cow. There you go. Well, so, Dolly Parton cows. We don't want any of them or Pamela Anderson cows. We want the nice, high-uttered cows. Okay. Wait, now, wait a minute. High, <laughs> high-uttered cows versus Pamela Anderson-uttered cows? Yes. How would I know you the know, difference? Um, when, you are, when you're milking cows and they have to have a calf every year, you want them to start off with their udder being high up next to their body mm-hmm. because lactation after lactation, it hangs a little lower. Okay. So you definitely don't want them to start off as Pamela Anderson. You yep. want them to start off up high and firm. And we are actually breeding for those traits. And if you have a cow with a great big hanging udder or a hang bag is what we call it, you now- don't want to have any of those kind of cows. Now, Tina, if our power washer friend in Green Bay started talking about Pamela Anderson hang bags, with oh. the, would, that, would he get in trouble? No, he would not get in trouble. But if you, that farmer, if you tell that, co- that farmer that one of his cows out there has a hang bag and he doesn't, he'll get upset. Oh, okay. Nobody wants to have hang bag cows. Well, maybe he can just throw, toss that off then in conversation like it's, you know, like, oh, I wouldn't want a hang bag. Am I right, right dairy yeah. farmer? Yeah, you could do that. You want it, yeah. When you're walking around, do you talk to the cows? Yes, I do. So <laughs> tell us how to all talk to a cow. All of them know who I am. They all know who I am. <laughs> I'm the one that milks them. Yeah. Um, I give their babies the first bottle. Uh-huh. So the babies know who I am. The moms know who I am. My husband, on the other hand, he gives them their vaccination. Uh-huh. So it's just like the vet with your dog. Um, sometimes they don't like my husband. <laughs> So so how do when when they kind of acknowledge you how how do you know that? Oh, they'll moo at you. They'll yeah. talk to you or when I'm milking them they'll turn their head around and they'll lick me. Oh. So they 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 definitely have different personalities. They can wrap their head around you and give you a good hug. Um some of them weigh 14 to 1800 pounds and <laughs> you definitely don't want a body hug, just a nice little, you know, a nose nudge is fine. But they all have different personalities. And so what what kind of things, if I want to talk to a cow, what kind of things should I say to a cow that I don't look like an idiot? I don't want the cow oh, to think can, I'm an idiot. If they reach your, their head out, you can scratch them under their chin. You don't want to go on top of their head like you do a dog. Uh-huh. Okay. You go underneath their chin, and you can just say, hi, how you doing? And they love to see you in the morning, but if you're late, dog on it, they're all going to yell at you. What does it sound like when they're yelling at you? Oh, it's a loud. Nobody's mooing right now, but when they are, it's like, ooh, ooh, ooh. 
And so they definitely have a happy moo, and uh, I want to be milk now moo. Yeah. Well, let's let's contrast uh, a happy moo. So what's a happy moo sound like? Moo, moo, moo. And a late moo, if you're late for milking, it's going to definitely be a lower tone and much, much louder. So, so let's hear that. Well, Tina, thanks. I think we have enough here to help our friend in uh, Green Bay next time okay. he's around dairy farmers. Okay. Bye, Mike and Ian. All right, we we heard a new we learned a new term this week, miracle flight. I'd never heard it before. Online with us now is our major airline pilot who prefers to remain anonymous, Captain Bob. Yeah, we call him Captain Bob. So, Captain Bob, can you tell us what a miracle flight is? Oh yeah, a miracle flight. Well, we don't see these on every flight, but uh, unfortunately, we see them probably a, a good amount of the time, fifty percent of the time. This is where we have passengers who. Um, they get on board the aircraft with some some malady. Generally, they arrive in a wheelchair, and we're not sure what happens, but somehow from the point of departure to the point of arrival, they're healed. They, they, they're, they no longer need the wheelchair. Hence the term miracle flight. That's right. They can walk off the aircraft under their own power. And, and so what's going on here? Well, we're not sure if there's some cosmic element uh, we're not sure if some of the flight attendants are actually healing the passengers or they're just trying to scan the airline and get around security the easy way. Okay, so it's not the food. Definitely not the food, if there even is food. So so these people, they are uh, renting or finding a wheelchair just to get through TSA security faster and, and I guess be the first to board the plane. How often do you think uh, you guys and the, and the flight attendants uh, can spot them? Well, they're, they're easiest to spot, of course, when they just get up in flight and, and avail themselves of the lavatories or when they just get up and walk off the aircraft at the end and they'll say, sir, you need your wheelchair. No, no, I'm fine. I can make it. <laughs> wow, look at him go. Well, Captain Bob, thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Good talking to you. All right, we want to thank everybody for the massive number of public restroom nomination submissions that we're getting. Every day we're getting new emails with new public bathrooms. We can pee almost anywhere with this knowledge. Just about. Um, and we're figuring out a format to package this, make it useful for, for all of us. Like a Poogle Maps. Peagle. Peagle just, Maps. Let's, just, let's try and avoid just any pun. Online with us now is Caroline, who has an inside track to finding great public restrooms in New York City. Caroline, why don't you tell us why that is? So um, I've been working in an ice cream truck, and um, my truck, like other food trucks, do not have bathrooms. So this is really important um, to find a good public bathroom that is not only usable, meaning that like people will let you use it, but it's also close to your truck, and it's like you know one that you can use that's in decent condition. Can I just say I never thought about the fact that food trucks didn't have bathrooms in them, um, and I'm so I'm so glad they don't because that would be pretty yeah. Gross. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't it wouldn't work. But at the same time, I never thought about that either. And then once I got this job, I was like, wait, so <laughs> where do I go when I need to go? And the answer is, you just gotta hop off. <laughs> 
So, so what's maybe your uh, your best find? Um, my best find. Well, one thing that's really good um, for Union Square in New York City. That's a pretty dense area. There's a lot of stores there. There's a lot of people there. There's a lot of food trucks there. Um, all of my fellow food truckers have um, decided that the McDonald's bathroom at Union Square is when they always go to. I never go there at all. I found that the Lululemon bathroom is the best because they actually have a public bathroom in their store. What is the Lululemon? It's like that, you know, that, that yoga athletic store. They're like all over the place now. Now, is it um, is it is it just women's athletic clothing? Because I think that mostly, I might look conspicuous yeah. going in there. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's gotten pretty popular, I guess. Now, uh in in trying out different uh restrooms around the city, do you have uh have you come up with any techniques for looking uh inconspicuous? Hmm. It depends on the place. So I have different strategies for different places. If it's a restaurant, I'll just kind of pretend that my table is outside or something. I'll just oh yeah, hey, you know, just kind of walk past the, the servers. If it's a large restaurant, it's usually pretty easy. If it's a small place, I'll just be like you know, pretty honest. I'm like, hey guys, what's up? Um, I work in that ice cream truck over there. Is it okay if I use your bathroom? And usually people are really sympathetic because, you know, they know we don't have our own bathroom and it's not easy. So they're usually really nice about it. Have you ever traded ice cream for restroom? Um, you know, it's it, that's something that I'm sure a lot of food truck people do is sort of trade around. Um, I definitely give some samples out if people are nice to me with the bathrooms. Um, I don't really give out a lot of free stuff because I'm not really supposed to. Okay. Um, but, you know, samples here and there. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> I wonder if that's maybe a good strategy for everyone to use, is have something that yeah. you can give to trade in order to use yeah, the bathroom. Yeah, trades are always good. Yeah, just a pocket yeah. full of candy. I don't have a food truck, yeah, but, sure. yeah. A Jolly Rancher <laughs> for a urinal, that, that seems fair. <laughs> yeah, definitely. All right, well, I think the public restroom in the Lululemon store in Union Square in Manhattan, that's our Toilet of the Week. Congratulations, Lululemon. And uh, keep sending in your nominations to howto at npr.org. That does it for this week's show. What would you learn, Ian? I, I, lear- I learned that Picasso was once a suspect... In a, an art theft, a big art theft, the Mona Lisa. Yeah. It, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, he was kind of a wild card. I will say, um, a Picasso portrait, that would be sort of the ideal super thief, the cubist person. You'd know if somebody was following you because you'd have one eye in the back of your head. Sure. Do you think, where did he get those people to pose? Like, how did he? Well, I've never been to Spain. I assume, I assume that's just what people look like there. Yeah. Do you suppose when they're born, the doctor's like, it's a Picasso. I bet what happens when they're born is they're trying to determine if it's a boy or a girl. But it's you never know where the genitals are on a cubist baby. I still don't know that I'm comfortable enough talking to a dairy farmer about hangbags. It does seem like uh, you, you go immediately to really intimate topics. Yeah. I feel like if a dairy farmer who was not familiar with the outside world tried to just befriend a non-dairy farmer... You could make a huge mistake. Like, hey, it's good to meet you. Your wife, no hangbags. That's not a good way to start. Yeah. You know, your wife, she's a real looker. I'll tell you what. Her udders are high and tight. How to Do Everything is produced by Blythe Hega with technical direction from Lorna White. Our intern this week is Leah Menzer. Leah Miracle Menzer. Also, we had 
Richard write in, and he wanted his friends Ricky Nelson and Jen Quint to be interns this week. So really, that's all it takes. Thanks for your service, Ricky, Jen. Send us your questions at howto at npr.org. Our worldwide website is howtodoeverything.org. And if you have a telephone and you want to call and leave us a message about your favorite public restroom, call 1-800-GAGAX-5. I'm Ian. I'm Mike. Thanks. Thanks. Mm.